Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick. This is episode number 213 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you by Acoustic Disc, where you can go up, you can put your email in the website there, and they will send you a free treat of the week, a free song every week from the incredible archives from Acoustic Disc. And Danny Barnes and David Grisman also have an incredible podcast called Acoustic Encounters. So be sure to check that out. Hey, you think about heading to Charleston anytime? How about the end of March, Easter weekend, the Charleston Bluegrass Festival? I'll be there. I'll be emceeing. I'll be playing. I have a mandolins in beer stage, which is actually constructed right next to the main stage. So they, uh, you know, bounce acts back and forth. I'm super excited. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to have some quick little interview segments with some of the people that are going to be playing. So that'll be a good time. I was John Stickley and Into the Fog and my band and uh, Fireside Collective. Two days of great music. Link below to get yourself some tickets. Also, just a reminder, too, the Green Mountain Bluegrass Festival announced their lineup this year. Woo-wee! That is in August. Another incredible lineup. And the Monroe Camp has entered. They've opened up their registration. And I'll have an interview next week with Lauren Price Napier, who will be one of the instructors. So so there you go. Uh, This week, Michael Pruitt. Boy, oh boy, the Peerless Mountain Sessions. This is Michael's debut solo cd and it is stellar um i listened to it a lot we did the interview yesterday and i listened to it obviously before that but i've been listening to it since then uh pretty non-stop i am digging it and i think you will too if you love mandolin playing and i'm guessing if you're listening to this podcast you love mandolin playing i also want to thank i got a couple really nice emails this week i want to thank everybody who reaches out that really means a lot to find out what the podcast means to them Michael has really kind words to say at the end of this podcast as well. And I want to thank those who've uh, who've joined up on the Patreon and who are enjoying the 365 Project. Again, it is songs broken down into licks, or solos, I should say, broken down into licks. And you learn a lick a day, you work on that, and the next day you learn the next lick. It's the next part of the solo. And over the course of however many days or however many licks there are in that solo, you have a solo under your fingers, plus all those parts completely interchangeable for songs in the same key. By the way, if you're wondering what tunes are in this collection, there are six solos, and they are Live and Let Live, Ronnie McCurry solo, a Wayne Benson solo for Lover Please Come Home, Panhandle Country, Sam Bush, Blue Ridge Cabin Home, and Head Over Heels by Bobby Osborne, and uh, Harry Clark from How Could I Love Her So Much. I break them all down into eight notes or sometimes a little bit more if there uh, if there's a space between the notes and yeah, get those solos under your fingers and you're building a vocabulary of licks. And if you go to my website right now, next week I'm going to be sending out a sample of one of the tunes so people can check it out. So if you're on my email list, check your email for that. All right, let's get into my sponsors. Peghead Nation. Actually, Peghead Nation just announced an eight-week course jazz violin solos but also uh you know those work for mandolin as well with aaron weinstein so that'll be fantastic they have the greatest lineup and they have a brand new studio that they uh that they just moved into pretty exciting stuff and they have some of the best instructors in in acoustic music sharon gilchrist joe k walsh mike compton john reichman aaron weinstein marla fibish chad manning ian Corey. the best part is you could get one of these courses for free your first month if you go to pegheadnation.com and use that promo code all one word mandolin beer At checkout, Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. 
Tone slabs, get yourself a slab of tone. I love my tone slab pick. A lot of great players out there have them as well. If you go to toneslabs.com right now, you could get yourself a slab of tone. Just head over there. They got all the shapes and sizes. They can also do specialty things for them as well. They're great to work with. I highly recommend them. So go to toneslabs.com right now. Tell them Daniel Patrick mandolins and beer sent you. String Joy 2. Oh my gosh, I just put a new set of String Joys on my mandolin last night. They sound so good. I love the Foxwoods. I am proud to be an endorsee of the String Joy strings. And you could get yourself a set. Just go to stringjoy.com. Use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. Get 10% off your order. And uh, yeah, that works on all the strings, by the way, too. So, so string up your guitars while you're at it. I love them. Stringjoy.com. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. Boy, oh boy, they make some beautiful ones, too. Follow them on Instagram. Just just works of art. And Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, vintage, fretted, stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They're now in their 51st year. They're family-owned and operated. They're award-winning. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at Elderly.com. All right, everybody, let's get into this episode with Michael Pruitt. This is a really, really fun one. I love Michael's playing. You're going to love it, too, if you're not familiar with it. The brand-new album, The Peerless Mountain Sessions, is available today. So go on and get yourself a copy. Have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast with a brand new recording, Michael Pruitt. Michael, how you doing, buddy? I am doing great, Daniel. And uh, it's thank you for having me on here. It's uh, I think I think it's been a couple of years since I was on here. I think I was getting ready to start recording, start tracking for this for this project that's now done. It's crazy to think it's like taken almost a couple of years, but um, yeah, it's great to be. Great to be back on here. So thanks for having me on. Man, thank you for doing it. And actually, I think there's been a special C album since the last time you were on, too. Northern Carolina, driving down I 95, left winter far behind. Might rain, but I don't mind. So I got the window down, 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 down. That's. That's right. There has uh, we, uh, the Great Blue North, or Great Blue, Great Blue North, um, came out in I think uh, last May, maybe or March, something like that of this of twenty three. So yeah, boy, talk about a band who puts out consistently killer albums, uh, especially yeah. consensus. It's unbelievable how good everyone is. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, especially, um, especially in the the era where the, we, the band has been on Compass. You know. Um, having, I think this that was maybe our sixth or seventh or maybe even eighth album out on Compass and uh, Records, and Allison Brown has produced, I think, every one of those. Um, and I think it would be really hard to make a bad album with Allison Brown producing. You know, <laughs> um, I don't think she would let that happen. So it's a, I think it's a, it's a two part thing. You know, Greg always 
um, has, has good players and singers in the band. And, um, importantly too, he lets them like, you know, he lets you be who you are, uh, musically. And, um, so you've got that going on. It's like a good band. And then, you know, Allison is producing at, you know, as, as well as anybody in the business does. And it's recorded in a nice studio. So, you know, what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> right. I think it was Tristan Scroggins who was just on, but he was just like, it was amazing to watch her take these tunes and completely rearrange them. And they were already cool tunes into something like even more cool, <laughs> you know, like it's like this magic talent she has. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the Greg uh, Cahill and, and Dan, Eubanks have been in the band. Well, <laughs> Greg's been in the band for quite a while, and uh, <laughs> they band for the last, I think, for every Compass record. So they know the drill. You know, Greg Blake and I were like suggesting, like, you know, we could maybe arrange this song this way, and they were like, yeah, we could, we could, but we're just gonna go in the studio, and she's gonna tear it to pieces and rearrange them anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> just hold off, you know. <laughs> it's it's pretty cool. I mean, it's like a, it's a different way than I, um you know, have ever worked before. And, you know, it's, it's its own thing, having the producer be like a kind of a fifth member of the band, you know, and, and just take a very active role in arranging. Um, but when it's someone like Alice, I've just learned so much, you know, from, from, from being there while she, you know, takes a song apart to its, to it's like basic structure, you know, and then just the ideas she has to keep every, like every line almost fresh and new, you know, on the recording is, it's pretty, it's pretty unbelievable to watch like track after track happen that way. You know, how long does it take when you go in with special C for something like that? Like uh, start to finish? Um, it takes a pretty good, pretty good while. Um, I don't remember just like how long overall the album took to track from start to finish. Um, but I know, you know, if, if you, I'd say we probably averaged about a song, per day maybe with maybe a little bit more than that but but having an actual complete song probably about a day i, I don't know something something around there and then we had a bunch of guests of course um, like she she really likes to, to do and um most of that not all of it but maybe half and half i guess was done uh you know remotely and then and then the other half in studio um so that was always going on too is like you know we'd have we'd get a file back from, you know, uh, John showman or something. And, and so then we'd have to maybe she'd, she'd say, well, he sent this file back and, and this is what he played. And it gave me an idea. So we need to re-record the mandolin rhythm track to this song, you know, <laughs> that you thought you were done with a month ago. And it's like, Oh, I gotta visit this. <laughs> um, so it's cool, but it, it's work. It's, you know, it's definitely feels like, feels like you're doing work when you're making albums that way as opposed to a more live, like, um, kind of spur of the moment kind of thing, you know? So it's cool to, I've enjoyed making albums, uh, in different ways now and, uh, kind of come to appreciate the different, the different approaches you can take to making good music. Well, special C when, when you guys get a set list together because you guys play a lot of shows and, and, and special C has a ton of albums. Are there like certain tracks that you guys just have to perform pretty much every show yeah i mean um yeah and sometimes that's just because like the crowd won't let you leave until you play like carolina pines or or uh you know something like that um so yeah you've got you've got a few hits going back to 
um, probably like their Route 10 album. I don't, I don't think we play anything from, and that was the album with like Josh Williams and, uh, um, uh, oh shoot, I can't remember who I was in the band, but that was the Josh Williams era and maybe like 2001 or three or something like that. Uh, I don't think we play anything. Oh no, that's not true. We play it. We do play one tune, uh, one song, uh, uh, 10 mile Tennessee, which is, I think recorded in the 90, early nineties, maybe. Tennessee winds aimlessly through the flatlands down below where the morning dew hangs heavy um, so <laughs> we definitely have to keep some of those uh, some of those current and then you know probably 60% of the material is from the last like album or two um, just trying to keep keep the show current and fresh and new you know so it's kind of an interesting mix of, of that, which is, you know, any band, any genre is doing something like that, I guess, if you've been around for 50 years. Well, the main reason, though, we're talking today is this album, which is going to come out today, which is February 9th, The Peerless Mountain Sessions. And this is your solo album. Yeah, my uh, my debut solo album. This is this is the first one. <laughs> Great. I remember, I think I remember you even posting on Facebook being like, ah, I think I might do a solo album or a solo instrumental mandolin album or something like that. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah, I did. I was like, you know, I wonder if I should do that. I mean, I was, it was sort of tongue in cheek, you know, how the internet always is. Um, but I was, but I was, you know, just trying to gauge like, are people going to be into this or not? And it was nice, you know, like mandolin friends and, people were like yeah you should do that and i was like okay well i guess maybe i now that i've said it i have to take what i said seriously and go make one <laughs> you know uh, i've committed so, <laughs> I've, I've accidentally committed myself to a years-long project whoops <laughs> but i'm glad it, it was really fun to make man you're playing on this album is so good man there's like some fearless stuff on there too your double stops and tremolo and stuff like that are just I was just listening to it again on the car. I had to do a couple errands before we interviewed today. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, man, as soon as we get done, I need to practice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, there's a couple of tracks that, you know, you may not want to play exactly what I played because <laughs> it's a little wild. But <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was fun. It was a it was a live record. And those are always kind of uh, I mean, it wasn't live, uh, you know, in it, there was no audience, but it was live in the studio. And those are those are really fun. Uh, but they you're always kind of like, okay, let's listen back and see what that sounded like. <laughs> so it was nice that it turned out. Oh man, it's so good. And and you recorded it at, at, at Peerless Studios? Uh, that was, I guess that was kind of sort of the point of, of the record. Studios is uh, a studio in, in Williamsburg, Kentucky, which is where I grew up. Um, and it's, it's on the site, well, it's on Peerless Mountain, uh, which was the site of an old coal camp. Um, back in the, I guess, probably 30s, 40s, 50s, somewhere like that. Um, and this is all obviously way before my time, so I have it secondhand. But um, Virgil Bolin, who, who engineered this project, was he was my first teacher and, and sort of mentor uh, type, type person. He, um, when I, when I, my first instrument was fiddle, actually, as a kid. 
a little kid and he had just gotten back from playing with Larry Sparks. And, um, I, I, uh, my, my parents, I was in elementary school. I was probably like third grade or something like that. And they went to the music teacher and I had, I had gotten a fiddle. This, this guy up in Cincinnati had, had given me this little, like a uh, three quarter size fiddle, you know? And, uh, and my folks were like, uh, you know, ask the music school music teacher, is there, do you, can you give fiddle lessons or do you know anyone who teaches fiddle? And she was like, well, funnily enough, my nephew just got back from playing with Larry Sparks and, uh, you know, which is like one of those very East Kentucky weird things. It's like, you know, <laughs> it doesn't happen everywhere. Um, but anyway, so, so he was kind of, after he had played with Larry for a few years, he was kind of the, uh, came back and started the studio, um, where he would record, but also, you know, give lessons and host regular, uh, jam sessions and, and stuff. And was kind of just like the musical, um, he was like the hub of the, of like bluegrass and folk type music that was going on in the county and um so so he was very instrumental in in my well in my playing anything really but he was mostly a mandolin player and i ended up picking up the mandolin and um you know taking lessons from him and uh anyway so he 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 did that for a long time and then he has been teaching up at the hazard uh bluegrass college program you know what i'm talking about the where Scott Napier, Scott Napier was teaching and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and then he, he, he still teaches there, but I think he just goes up there one day a week now. And he started back, started the studio back after having it been, uh, after it was closed for, for a while. And, uh, when I heard that he was opening it back up, I was like, you know, why don't I just make a record there? And, uh, just like kind of, you know, I don't know. It, it felt nice to come, what felt like full circle, you know, and, and, and do that. And it was funny. The, I think the week before we made the, made the record, um, he went, I think him and his wife went to just like, you know, open the studio for the first time in a while and see what condition it was in. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they ended up having to like go get a shop back. And, um, I think there was like, uh, like maybe rip up the carpet or just like, it was in way worse shape than they thought it was going to be at the, and uh, they were like, we're going to have it ready for next week. Um, but we're, we're scrambling. And, uh, but it was great. It was, it's like very DIY. Uh, it was like a, a very, felt like a punk way to make a traditional album, which is kind of my, uh, that's like my favorite way to do things. <laughs> um, but it, it turned out great and it was a lot of fun and it was very, uh, um, you know, it was very free sort of feeling. And, and um, I like making music with, you know, just friends and, and everybody who played on the album were just friends and uh, people that I've known for either a long time or, or Dan, you know, playing the playing specialty with now. And uh, it was just one of those things that comes together easily and um, feels feels pretty natural and uh, authentic to like the reality of the conditions in which it was made, which is a very fancy way of saying that. But, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It felt nice. So that's a long way of answering a question about Peerless Studios. Uh, it was kind of like ended up being the defining sort of like uh, aesthetic or vision or or whatever of the album. Um, and so that's why I named it that just was like, yeah, you know what? This sort of represents everything that this album is about. So uh, that's what I'll call it. Uh, speaking of Dan Eubanks, man, I mean, obviously I've heard him play on 
the uh, all the special C albums and stuff. But holy cow, man! But he's got great pocket, especially um, I think Lonesome Moonlight Waltz. bass player in a situation like this album no exactly i mean that's that's um i was thinking about you know what i was going to do on the album and um you know first i was just you know like the first idea was to do a mandolin album and it would be a full band you know and then i i had been listening to um i'd been listening to just some jazz trio stuff that probably dan had recommended i don't even know what it was maybe some miles davis um stuff and, and just various like mid-century jazz trio things and i uh, was like you know what what about a trio like what about what's the bluegrass or old-timey version of of like a, a trio like that and uh so that's that's sort of why i ended up doing the banjo bass mandolin trio and uh obviously dan was like there's not there's not many other bass players that can that can hang with that kind of set up and play everything that they need to play in that setting. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, he's, I mean, he's just, he's probably, I don't know. He's definitely one of, one of my favorite bass players ever. Um, and just the way that he can play really traditional, uh, bluegrass type stuff and, and just like have such a pocket with that feel and then also just go crazy on, on soloing <laughs> right. over, over fiddle tunes. So it was, a. Uh, it's like I don't think this album could really have been made or sound the way it does without the specific people involved. Um, and yeah, Dan is a, Dan is was a huge part of that. It's it's a great example too of there's a fine line between a very metronomic bass player and a bass player that plays with pocket. You know what I mean? Like it's it's there's that stiffness in in some things when it's just too driving. And boy, he he does not have that problem at all. He just he's got great feel, man. Yeah, he plays with such feel, and it's it's like he can't he can't not play with feel. You know, like playing how many ever shows I've played with him now, you know, hundred shows or whatever. It's like you know, um, I, I think the great musicians are like this. It's like you have a bad day, you know, traveling or whatever. You're just like, you know, things aren't going well in the like offstage stuff you know it's like the airlines lost your luggage or you know they didn't have a rental car or you know you had a flat tire just whatever and then you get on stage and it's like all of a sudden you know uh you can't help but playing with feel you know it's like that part doesn't change and um and and dan is just so that way making this album there's just so many times where it's like you know we we did this thing wasn't very uh like pre-produced at all. We had one night of quick rehearsals just to make sure like everybody knew the tunes, you know, <laughs> and, and I, I did write out charts, which is hilarious um, for the, for some of these tunes because of the chart is like one, 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 five, five, one, 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 one. That's the chart, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, so, so there was no like talks about, you know, 
we'll have this hit here or maybe we'll push here and Dan just all you know it was just like in the moment he would he would feel that and it every single time was perfect you know um pretty much on every take uh, so that was pretty cool I was glad that you put Tombstone Junction that's track one on here you did that on uh David Benedict's uh Mandolin Mondays Yeah, I um, yeah, I can't remember. Maybe I wonder if I recorded that first and then played it on on uh, his channel, or if playing it there made me uh, think about doing it on the album. But yeah, either way, it's a uh, such a great tune. And you know, um, a funny or not funny, but interesting story about that. Um, Virgil Bolin says at least that, um, as far as he knows, he was there the first time Bill played that because there was a. Uh, there was an amusement park or not an amusement park, a theme park, I should say, um, where right around where I grew up called tombstone junction. And, uh, and Bill did his classic, like they used to have bluegrass bands come through and play every weekend there. Or, well, really Opry bands, you know, bluegrass and country. And, uh, apparently Bill did his classic, uh, you know, all right, now we're going to play one, uh, song I wrote, you know, Last night on the way here, this one's called Tombstone Junction. <laughs> and, and, and Virgil's like, the band just had no idea what was happening, you know. <laughs> um, but, but it's cool. I thought, you know, that's a that's a kind of, in a way, a local tune then. And uh, yeah, and it's such a great tune, too. The deep cut. It is. Yeah, Monroe, he never recorded it. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I actually just today, I was like, I don't. I I thought I had as much Monroe as you could possibly have. You know what I mean? I've got all those Bear family box sets. I'm like, how is this not in my computer anywhere? You know? And I had to go on the internet. I'm like, gosh, uh, the only thing is, is like live versions on YouTube. That's right. Yeah. There's um. I know there's one recorded version of uh, um, of the tune by um, um. Oh, what's his name? The fiddler uh, Campbell, Jimmy Campbell. Is that his oh, name? Oh yeah, Jimmy Campbell. Um, and, and so they recorded it and I think I can't remember who I was on that album. Maybe it's Mike Compton playing the mandolin. Um, but I think that's the only re- recorded version I know of. There's probably others, but, um, I think that's the only one I've been able to find. Uh, I learned it off, off a live Monroe thing on YouTube. How did you pick the tunes for this album? Cause there are some deep cuts in here. Yeah, it's, I mean, most of it is deep cuts. I would say, Oh, like somewhat deep, like there's people who I'm not like a, a scholar of, you know, old time tunes or even bluegrass tunes always just people who know a lot more deeper stuff than me. But these are just things that, you know, I was like, mo- by and large have not been cut on a mandolin album before a lot of them, you know, um, and a lot of it's fiddle music. And, um, and that was, that's just what I've been into probably for the last couple of years. Um, is, is just, you know, I, I lived up North for a while too. I lived up in North Dakota uh, on the kind of in the corner, the Minnesota, North Dakota, and Manitoba corner, the way up there, and uh, you know, ran into all kinds of different tunes being up there and and just playing with different people, and uh, so there's a, there's a couple of Métis tunes from up in Manitoba, um, 
and and North Dakota here. And then there's um, there's some like old time tunes from East Kentucky and uh, from there's a Missouri tune I think. And uh, I think there's you know some bluegrass bluegrass stuff. So it's just like a weird collection that really has no there's there's nothing tying these tunes together other than like the fact that I heard them and liked them. You know, um, which, <laughs> right. which, which I think is enough. You know. Um, like, from the different places I've lived and just kind of soaked up. Um, so it's, it's not supposed to be a, you know, anything uh, like, a, you know, I'm not, I haven't found any new tunes or anything like that, but it's just some different tunes that I, I liked and learned and thought that there's probably a, an audience of people who hadn't heard them and saying that's how, that's how it turned out, you know. Was there a, like, did you start a list early on before you even knew you were going to do a recording of some of these songs being like, someday I want to record a version of this? Or did you just, when you decided to do the album, just sat down and were like, all right, time to make a list of some of these tunes? Yeah, you know, um, a very 21st century thing. Um, I, when it, I started thinking about making the album, I looked back at sort of, what are some tunes that I have been posting of myself playing on the internet? you know, on, on social media, you know, like I would, I would learn, uh, you know, learn whatever is Mr. Waltz and, you know, post a video of it. And then, so like the next year, whatever was looking back and was like, Oh, okay. You know, looking through your posted videos and like, it's actually a pretty good resource for <laughs> tunes, you know, you know? Um, so, so it was definitely that way. I wasn't planning to make these tunes into an album. I, I just sort of gathered them after having learned and liked them, you know? Well, I would highly recommend anybody work on the solo to Is Mr. Waltz, by the way. Man, you, uh, that is a killer solo on that tune that you take on your break. Thank you. Thank you. That's um, that's a John Arcand tune who was uh, a Métis fiddler from up in, uh, well, he might be from Saskatchewan, actually. He's somewhere up in uh, Prairie, Canada, and uh, it's a, yeah, it's a beautiful tune that uh, I, I had never heard before until I lived up there. And uh, yeah, it's it's a great tune. Which one of these was the first one that you knew you wanted to cut? You're like, okay, we're going in. This is my album. Track first track we're recording is this <laughs> you know i don't remember which track was the first that we recorded um but i think the first one i knew i wanted to record was probably tombstone junction um it was either that or i am a pilgrim um and and virgil actually plays a, a second mandolin on i am a pilgrim which turned out to be i don't know it's one of my favorite tracks on the album just it's just it's wild it's you know there's parts of it that are just insanity when we're both going you know heavy heavy tremolo action <laughs> notes sliding around everywhere 
but that's kind of another thread, I guess, that went into the album. Um, I had I'd also been listening to um, those Kentucky Colonels live in Europe albums. Have mm. you ever listened? To yeah. Those? Yes. Um, where they've got uh, one of them. One album I think has they've got two different banjo players, and uh, one of them is Alan Mundy, and the other one is uh, Herb Peterson, I think. And uh, I, I was listening to those on a plane once, and um, and that's kind of I think when maybe the last link that fell into place for this album was you know those albums are not perfect because they're live recordings you know and they're not like I don't know in one in one sense they won't blow your mind and then another sense they will and just because it's it's you know great musicians playing playing well you know and playing with like heart and stuff because they'd just gotten the band sort of back together you know and so they were just like I think they were feeling like they were playing on time that they shouldn't have been allowed to have or something like that, you know? And, uh, so I was, I was listening to those and just thinking, man, this like music doesn't have to be, you know, like you don't have to make it in a state of the art studio and with like paid session players. And it doesn't have to sound perfect to be really great and worth listening to 50 years later, you know? And, and and so for me the standout track that Clarence always plays is I am a pilgrim. I, he just for some reason the way that he plays it is so iconic to me. And uh so so I wanted to do that uh, on the recording uh, as well. And I I like putting one spiritual number in and like some at least some sense of the word <laughs> on uh, on recordings uh just to just to keep it a little bit mystical, you know. Oh man, for sure. <laughs> Last time I drove up to Nashville, one of the albums I listened to a couple of times was Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers. And it's just, it's just like, good Lord, man. Like, yeah, like any one of these songs you could just record and be like, you know, except you'd have to be like, I can't sing like Sam Cooke. However, <laughs> these yeah. are great tunes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sam Cooke is everything he did was like the secular stuff and the and the gospel stuff was just all of it was like coming from the same place. You know, there was really no difference. Yeah, exactly. It was awesome. Which one of these tracks for you was the one that uh, you felt was the most difficult to record? Um, well, honestly, none, none of them were that hard to record. The one, that, the one that was the hardest to record was the one that didn't make it up to the album. Oh, no uh, way. We recorded 11 tracks uh, and there's only 10 on the album. Um, what was that tune? It was some, uh, it might've been a Shetland Islands tune or something from Scotland. Um, and now I can't even remember what it was, but that was when we took like, I think we took four takes on it, maybe four or five. And, uh, and it, it just never worked, but nothing else took more than two or three takes. Um, so it was all, it was all pretty much just, you know, um, you know, it's kind of going to be what it's going to be. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things on the album that are like, you know, if I was, if I was recording it in an album with the ability to, I mean, we had the ability, but we just chose not to isolate and, you know, go back and punch stuff in and, and fix, you know, quote unquote, fix stuff. Um, there, there are definitely notes and licks that, you know, I would have changed. And, and the fact that they're not changed is I think like sort of what makes the album cool. You know, it, it's like gives it this energy. Um, 
but so I'd say the track that I would do the most changing on this is this is maybe awful from like whoever's going to tell me like call me and hey uh, from over from marketing and you shouldn't be saying this about your album. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but Bostoni is just such a such a crazy tune. And I, I put this weird, um, this weird chromatic lick that goes down in this one in this certain part of it. I can't really explain where it is. Um, anyway, I played it every time I, I played the tune without realizing it. And it's not really part of the tune. It's just like a lick that I kept putting in there. And then, and, and now now I go back and listen to it, and I think, wow, that's kind of annoying. Um, you know, like that's not in the tune. Like people who are really like, because that's an Ed Haley tune from up in the up in West Virginia. Uh, and uh, <laughs> like real old time people are probably going to hear that and be like, oh, this album's trash. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but that's uh, that's kind of that's kind of what I like about it is, you know, it's well, that's the way it is now. And that's, you know, that was how it was recorded on on that particular day. And uh, <laughs> that's the that's that's how it's going to stay. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, dude, I can't I can't imagine, though, like Ed Haley's a great example. Bill Monroe's a great example. Like if Bill Monroe put an album out, if he was like young Bill Monroe and putting an album out today, I don't think it would have nearly the same sort of feel if he was like picked up by a super label or something like that. You know what I mean? It might be just be too produced. Like the thing I love about Bill Monroe is every time you hear a version of a a song, it's the snapshot of what that song sounded like to him the day he recorded it. It doesn't matter what he played five years ago. Right. And, you know, and people talk about that, like, you know, in bluegrass or, or related sort of genre or, you know, probably every genre, I guess. Um, but people talk about that, how, you know, you can't make that album today is what always you hear, you know? And the thing is, is you can, if you just do, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you have, you have to get over, you have to get over the fear of like, Oh no, this isn't perfect. Like, you know, what are, what are other musicians going to think? And, you know, when I think when you quit caring that much about what other musicians are going to think, you know, you can really tap into what, sort of unique stuff you have to you have to offer you know yeah, that's great advice man as somebody who's been in the studio recently and like just in my own head about don't screw this take up because you know everything was live as well and it was yeah. just like oh if i screw this up the other person i'm recording with is going to be like ugh. but you know they made mistakes too which was beautiful you know we're all human and you're just you, for, you forget that because all you hear is the finished product most of the time yeah well and there's this weird i feel like you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, I pretty much have only played bluegrass in like old time. So I don't know how it is in like, you know, um, like rock or, or, you know, hip hop or whatever. Um, so maybe this is just a thing about music in general, or maybe it's sort of specific to bluegrass. Um, my feeling is the latter is that, um, you know, we have this like platonic ideal uh, of like what the perfect bluegrass sound is, you know, it's like, it is probably like, on one of the bluegrass album band albums or something, you know, it's like, (laughs) this is what perfect bluegrass should sound like. And I feel like maybe too often, a little too often bluegrass bands are, are trying to like, okay, here's the sound that we need to have, how we got to work hard to get there, you know? 
instead of instead of just being like let's play the play the music and that will be the sound you know like we start backwards with like here's what it's here's like here's the ideal and then like how do we conform to that ideal rather than just let the music sort of be organic and and natural and and end up as something new you know well a great example is like looking at the the back cover of this bluegrass stomp you do an eight minute version you know what i mean like if you were <laughs> just sitting down worrying about getting played on the radio you would have sat down and been like okay we need to knock this out in three minutes or less <laughs> you know exactly <laughs> yeah it's like that's uh that's that's probably not going to make it to xm i don't think <laughs> how great would it be it'd be like your november rain <laughs> yeah, yeah right <laughs> That you know, that's funny because we weren't. Uh, that, that was the one that was unplanned, kind of. Um, I, I as we went into the studio, I threw out the idea. Um, I think I'd just been listening to that tune again, like revisiting it, like the day before or something. And was like, hey, if we have time, let's uh, let's just knock off a, a version of Bluegrass Stomp and kind of stretch out a little bit on it. And uh, that was just that was we did one take. And that was it. And uh, <laughs> you you can hear at the end we're like kind of you know just like it are we are we done okay i guess we're done you know um and then there's like there's like two times that dan and i were going back and listening to it um when we got to like the finished albums you know we were like oh man there's like two or three times in there when we thought about stopping and we could no, nope, we're still going <laughs> just like we're gonna gonna put the listener to the test like can you make it through this song you know <laughs> you know what though it, it mixes up so much though like it doesn't feel like you know, like certain, well, this one's definitely more of a bluegrass song than an old time song too, but like sometimes like old time songs, because it's just the same melody uh, over and right. over again. Well, right. well, with this one, you get to dance around the melody and, and actually take it to a few different places. And it, it doesn't feel like eight minutes. That was the first thing I thought of when I looked at the back of the record and, and I had listened to it already. I'm like, wow, I didn't, I don't recall it being a really <laughs> long version of that song. Well, that's good. That's good. I've, I've been, uh, I've been listening to, um, doing this like retrospective, uh, there's this there's this book called a thousand and one albums you must hear before you die which which is you know like kind of a dumb concept but i just like i feel like there's so many big missing gaps in my musical listening history that i've been working through that list and i'm up to like i'm like 100 plus albums in and i'm up to like 1967 you know <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and uh, so i've just been listening to a ton of like bay area psychedelic rock from like 1967 um, which in my opinion is not very good overall, <laughs> sure. and, you know, and the, the, it's just like you get to, I'll be like, Oh wow, this album only has eight tracks on it. Cool. Well, you know, the eighth track is 17 minutes long and is like a one key <laughs> jam. And so th those feel like they're about 25 minutes long. And so I'm glad that this, uh, the eight minute track doesn't feel like it's eight minutes long. <laughs> So are you going to be doing some solo shows? I know Special C keeps pretty busy, but are you going to try to do some shows for um, for this album? So, yeah, I would. Um, I'm in the sort of early uh, tentatively planning uh, a few solo shows. Um, 
to hopefully get this uh, this album band um, to play maybe a, a weekend's worth of of shows around uh, like around home. You know, not go out very far, but maybe play uh, play a few local things as kind of a delayed release party mini tour thing. Um, so hopefully that works out. Sure, that'd be great, man. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it would. I mean, this this album band has never played a show together, um, and I think it would just be a, a a killer, fun time. Oh, definitely. Any places uh, you're looking forward to hitting this year with Special C? Um, let's see. Trying to think of where all we're going to be going. Um, we go up to Boston. Uh, well, when this this will release on the yeah the ninth, um, and we'll be in Boston the next weekend. And um, which will be fun because I've never really been to New England um, other than driving through Maine to get to Quebec. Um, but um, other than that, you know, I can't I can't really remember our schedule. So <laughs> I, I'm really looking forward to being wherever we are. Uh, in, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or, and uh, I, I got to I got to mention too, um, Brady Wallen is the only other person on, on the album who. Uh, who I haven't mentioned, and he played banjo and guitar um, on the on the whole thing, uh, mostly banjo, but a couple of tracks he also played guitar on. And Brady and I went to high school together, um, and and now he plays uh, plays guitar with Amanda Cook, and uh, also is killer killer banjo player. Played with Clay Hess for a good while a few years ago, and um, having I knew he was like the per- sort of the same thing, uh, you know, the same idea is having Dan play the bass was having Brady play banjo because, um, you know, he's, he's just one of the most inventive banjo players. I know while, while still playing pretty, pretty traditionally, you know, which is mostly what this album is, is trying to do, I think. And, um, and so that was when I, when I sort of put those two pieces into the, the trio, it, seemed like it you know we could do it because most of this album there's not a guitar on you know um which is kind of weird a little bit um and especially not have a fiddle or a guitar on like a fiddle tune album is you know something strange but but there's a you know the i was i was thinking has 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 this kind of trio ever really recorded much before and um the only other real version i could think of this i'm sure other people can know of other stuff but the trio that um Grisman had with Danny Barnes and Sam for, for a while. I, I realized it's actually the same. It's the same configuration. You know, Danny plays banjo, dog plays mandolin and mandolin family stuff, you know, and, and Sam plays bass. And uh, it actually, it works pretty good. I mean, I think it's a uh, kind of a under, you know, we need more mandolin banjo bass trios out there. That's right. Uh, That's you know? right. Um, so for some reason, the you know it kind of works. Um, but anyway, Brady is is so good at you know knowing when to fill space and and knowing when not to. Um, and I also had the had the had the tracks mixed. I mixed half of them, and, and Troy Boone mixed the other half, and have and uh, have them mixed to where if you listen on headphones, um, every instrument is panned pretty dramatically. So so that you know you kind of if you want to you can listen to one. You can really tell what one instrument is doing a hundred percent of the time if you want. You know, it's not it's not like when when something takes the lead, the other instrument totally falls off um, or gets lost. You know, um, so the goal is hopefully to sort of have the listener feel like you're in the room and can kind of focus on 
whoever you want to, you know. So. And is this your Pava on this album? Yes, this is uh, this is the first album that uh, that 498 is on. Um, the Special C album, I think I recorded on Pava 500, uh, which was which I was playing at the time, and then sort of gave back and took 498 instead. Um, and uh, and, that, and that's right. The other stuff I've recorded has been on other things. So this is the first time that yeah, 498 has been recorded, and I think it sounds so good. Oh my gosh, it does sound really good. I'm biased, but thank you. Oh man, no, yeah. Do you remember what you mic'd it up with? Not that it matters, but I'm super nerdy and I love this um, stuff. You know, I knew you were going to ask this, and so I uh, I texted Brady because he brought two mics up and said, "Hey, do you remember what those mics are? I think Daniel's probably going to ask you." <laughs> um, and uh, he said back, "They're Peluso. Um, um, C, uh, they're CEMC six SK, whatever that means. Um, they are. That's what the guitar and banjo and mandolin were mic'd on. Um, I'm I'm very much like not a gear person, um, but they they sound." great and then the bass was just mic'd uh there was like a condenser maybe two condensers one up one up top and one you know down uh for the low the low frequencies um and so we just had i think i guess most of the time three mics going or four and we were just you know literally sitting in a circle looking to no headphones just just playing you know you you can tell dude that this album it's got a soul to it it's got all the right space you know what i mean it just I am. I'm the best part is, is like, I've only had a copy of this now for maybe two weeks. So I'm excited. Like, I feel like I'm barely just getting into it and just, I'm loving it. So. Well, that's great, man. That's, that's great to hear it. uh, Yeah. Like I've said, it was was a lot of fun to make. And um, even listening back to it myself, you know, like you don't always want to listen to the things you make (laughs) back, but this one, you know, it's like, it's, it's, I think it's good music and it, I think it also rewards repeated listens, you know, which is, in my opinion, the best, best kind of music when it has kind of something to offer, you know, for different listens. And I'm, dude, I'm just loving, uh, this is like the uh, second episode in a row. Last week was Tristan Scroggins and we talked about this, but it just, I'm loving the uh, mandolin creeping into the old time territory, which is in a, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, probably 10 years ago, I, I well, I shoot. I probably before this podcast, I barely knew the difference between old time and bluegrass. I really just listened to bluegrass, you know. And uh, doing this and has turned me on. Like talking to you when I had you on last time, just like it, it really inspires me when you were talking about like the crooked Canadian style fiddle tunes you were hearing and learning. It made me go and listen to some of these recordings and really, you know, find how much of a better player it makes you when you try to sit down and play some of these fiddle tunes that are only fiddle recordings on the internet on mandolin it really makes you think differently yeah well it's some of them are impossible i mean yeah yeah you're telling me i'm glad you said it because i was a couple times i was like i am terrible (laughs) well well some of them you just like you have to change them to some degree to play them on the mandolin you know just because you can't you can't totally replicate what a fiddle can do it just has a little more range in, in different ways you know but yeah like 10 years ago you were weird if you liked old time you know and now it's like you're weird if you don't like old time. <laughs> yeah uh, right right exactly <laughs> it's like and it's also like old time mandolin you were saying is like uh i feel like that term is like probably two years old or something because there's like really there's really what is old time mandolin you know i mean there's people that played mandolin with like old time fiddlers but they were backing them up i mean they were never really playing playing lead and it's weird you get an old time jam as a mandolin player and you're like the overriding question is like 
what the heck do I do? You know, it's like, you know, what do, do I, you know, I'm, maybe I'll jump in and play some lead on this tune. Maybe I'll play some chords, but not chop because that would be maybe too much. I, you know, so it's, I feel like old time mandolin is kind of weirdly developing, like sort of as we speak, maybe. Um, I think old time mandolin is really cool though. Uh, just the, the unique voicing that it can give to, to these fiddle tunes, you know, it, it definitely adds a different, uh, like le- a level of nuance or something. Oh, for sure, man. Like do, if you can't, if you don't listen to Caleb Clowder and your heart doesn't get racing, you know what right. I mean? Like that type of stuff. Like to, to me, he's the guy who I know there's, you know, uh, Oh, uh, Ed Haley's wife played, you know, like to me, I, my first real discovery of it would have been, um, foghorn string band you know what i mean yeah. and i can listen yeah. to all that stuff in his i mean it just boy it moves you you know absolutely i think that i'm probably the probably have the same origin story for old time uh, mandolin you know like first context of hearing it was probably hearing caleb play it and i got to uh, we played the same festival in australia this past year as at foghorn dorigo and um i got to they Caleb asked me to get on stage and play one song with him. I was just like, you know, being very cool about it, but I was kind of freaking out because I was like, <laughs> you don't know how, how many times I've listened to you guys play Mississippi Sawyer or something. And, you know, <laughs> just like, you know, that, that approach is really was a huge influence on me. Even before I really got into old time, just, just the way his mandolin sounded and like the, the approach, the linear sort of approach he had, to just to play in leads in a even a country setting you know um caleb is yeah definitely one of my heroes and um yeah people haven't heard foghorn i mean i can't understand how you wouldn't have by now but you know if you haven't got to go hear them oh you got to i mean that's literally one of the albums i can remember where i was when i heard it i was at elderly instruments flipping through (laughs) the uh books i made a you know i used to drive a hour and a half there and i remember Mm -hmm. i was like what is this and I went and asked the guy, and he's like, Foghorn String Band. I'm like, where do I buy it? <laughs> yeah. My money. <laughs> yeah. But even again, though, like, I really didn't – at that time, I was still really into, new into mandolin. So, you know, I was still really in, like, listening to, like, Grisman and Shady Grove and obviously, right. like, Thiele stuff and, and, and Foghorn. But I didn't really correlate. There was a difference. It was just all mandolin yeah. music to me at that time. So Right, right. And, you know, the Internet has been very helpful with all of, all of this because, you know – I mean, for one, just discovering these tunes was nigh to impossible 20 years ago. You know, like when, when it'd been long enough that you couldn't get the actual recordings from anywhere or even know that they existed, but not quite yet able to find them on the Internet. You know, um, like I can't imagine that the, the 90s must have been a dark time. <laughs> Dude, I, yeah, just like, what was that song? You'll never know. <laughs> yeah. You'll never <Yeah>. know. <laughs> yeah. It's a uh, yeah, very very happy to to make my tiny little contribution into uh, to old time the old time mandolin world. Just much sticking my toe in. Yeah, I love it, buddy. Well, congratulations on a killer album, man. I'm 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 excited. It's out in the world here today on the ninth. I highly recommend everybody go buy it. Uh, Bandcamp is that the place you recommend, or is there someplace else? Um, actually, my website is probably the easiest way to to buy the to buy the physical. Uh, or digital version, um, if you want to, and also I don't I don't care if people stream, um, whatever they whatever they do, as long as they're listening to it. Um, so it, it'll be on Spotify and everything else too. Fantastic. Well, man, thanks for doing the podcast again, buddy. I appreciate it. 
yeah well my pleasure uh as as always to be on here thanks again for i know i i said this last time i think but this is definitely there's i don't know if there's been anything in the last you know five years or how long have you been doing this podcast now four and a half years now i think i think yeah. 2019 is when i started oh it's going on yeah. five years yeah Whew. i was gonna I was gonna say i think this may be like the first podcast that i ever started listening to regularly oh right on man I, I don't think i was really i was trying to remember i could be wrong about this but that was about when i started getting into podcasts and i think this may be the first one where i was like okay well maybe i should check out this podcast thing you know and and I was like, oh, it's just people talking about niche interests that I love. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for, thanks for doing this. I don't think there's been anything in the last five years that has helped like mandolins, you know, more than probably this podcast. So thank you. Oh, man. Thanks so much, dude. That's so nice to hear. All right. Thanks so much to Michael for doing the podcast. Always a great time talking with Michael. Uh, his new album, The Peerless Mountain Sessions, it is available everywhere today, February 9th, 2024. Get yourself a copy. Highly recommend going out and buying it. Support your favorite mandolin player. Have a great weekend. Cheers, everybody.